Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve J. so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Today's guest is T.J. Hoffman, the director and star, I might add, of Roadie, my documentary. Welcome, T.J. Thank you very much for having me. So how did this project get started? You know, it's funny. It didn't start out as a documentary. It started out as we were pitching a reality show. I want to say we started in 07 or 08. I started to write a book about my life on the road and how a non-musician kid from New Jersey basically got to share a stage in his final days of his career, uh, you know, on the KISS tour for a year. So I started to write down some stuff, putting a book together, this and that. And a friend of mine out in LA said, hey, there's this new thing called reality TV. And forget the book right now. You got some cool stuff here. I think we should pitch a reality TV show. So I dropped everything and we put together a pitch package and I reached out to all my friends and and everybody in the business to get their support. It was a lot easier for me to go into LA as a music guy pitching a TV show as opposed to a TV guy pitching a TV show. Hmm. So my whole angle on on the reality show was, look, I'm a roadie. I know where it's cool to be. And, you know, if a, if a guy's having a bad day in front of house, pull the cameras back, we go somewhere else. I could be that fly on the wall and, and uh, the guys on the road, they trust me with the camera. That's basically essentially where it all started. So flying out from New Jersey to L.A., back and forth, pitch meetings with, you know, MTV, VH1, other production houses trying to get my foot in the door. It got very costly, very fast. Music and TV collided. Mm. Legal, legally wise. And it was just no way for me to film this guitar player in this shot with this head, but you can't show this drum. I mean, it was, it was bonkers on some of the, the things. And then, and then getting access uh, was crazy too, especially on the East coast here with the union halls and having to pay enormous fees. It was crazy. So I, I bagged the whole TV thing. I just choked it up as a learning experience. I walked away from the whole thing for years. Well, speaking of learning experiences, in the film, you make a point of telling the viewers that the project had morphed from Rody the documentary to Rody my documentary. What did that change represent to you? It was a huge change, and it's definitely not what I wanted. And I, I kind of mentioned that in the film. You know, I didn't want this film to be about me. I'm so much more comfortable on the other side of the camera that there's no way that this was going to be about me and, and make it interesting. Um, even though I thought I had a kind of a cool story and had the right people but I wanted to really come and do the complete full compass 360 degree and teach everybody from, you know, a 10 year old kid who's, who's a Miley Cyrus fan all the way down the road to the, the Sinatra fan, basically people that love music, but don't really know what goes into a live concert. As we're putting this piece together, we were using some of my home footage from the, from the late eighties and early nineties as placeholders while we were editing. And the more that I put my home videos into the, the timeline and the segue to different chapters, my editor, Andy Straw, and he's also my East Coast DP, and me and him worked exclusively on this thing on the East Coast. He said, look, we, we got to change direction. There's so much better stuff here. Let's stop filming new. We, we have the movie. 
and it was your movie and um, it's your story. And I was reluctant at first. He interviewed me one time and he says, we got it. We're done. It's a wrap. And I kind of let him go with it. So I don't want to say he tricked me, but he, he guided me in that direction to tell my story. Well, I think, you know, having a more personal angle also helps because there's a lot of people in this movie. As you mentioned, there's a lot of people behind the scenes. What was the most difficult? I'm sure there are many, but was it a most difficult aspect of making this film? You know, it's funny because the whole thing was difficult. I funded it 100% by myself. I had a, um, a couple, a, a Kickstarter thing and a GoFundMe, uh, you know, all those little things, but I, I did it wrong. I, another learning experience. I threw some, um, some viewing, some screenings, uh, some fundraising, stuff like that. That was the hardest part for me to get the money to, to go edit, to go shoot, to get the crew, to, to get the right camera. There's no lights here. Let's go get that. Let's go to LA and meet this guy. The window for us to interview this guy was only two days. We had to jump on a plane. But that was the, the hardest part. The easiest part was was the content and the stories and the people and and my friends in the business that trust me with the camera. You know, it just compounded. You know, they were telling their friends they were really they were involved in this really cool film, and you got to call TJ and TJ. You got to interview this guy. He's been around longer than me, and I can make a part two and three probably of this film with everything I have. So definitely, the hardest part was the funding part myself, not having a an institution behind me just to to write the check. Yeah, it seems like that's uh, the way with almost all of the documentaries since we've started this. It's one of the questions I ask and nobody says, oh, that's easy. You know, it's always the funding. So uh, let's rewind a little bit. How and when did you first become a roadie and how long did you keep at it? So it was it was like the mid to uh, late 80s in central New Jersey. Some friends of mine were, were in a local band. Uh, the band was American Angel and they were kind of too big to be small, too small to be big in the New Jersey circuit. And um, some venues had a lot of stairs and it was like, Hey, we got some pretty good stuff. TJ, why don't you come to the show, help us load the gear and you could drink for free. I, I wasn't 21 yet. Uh, yeah. Drink for free. I, like I'm in no problem. So me and my other buddy, we just threw stuff in the back of my pickup truck and hung out at the show. And at that time, my, my little brother, actually both my little brothers were involved with this band. Uh, one was drum tech, one was guitar tech. I just started to be around the scene a little bit and live music, being around alcohol and the venues and the girls. It was it was a perfect fit for me. And that's where I stuck with it. And then little by little, that whole thing just blossomed into not drinking so much, paying attention, getting more pro, figuring out how I could earn more money on the road and networking myself into different bands. And it, I mean, you got to watch the movie, yeah. <laughs> right? Definitely. What's the first thing a roadie has to do when he gets to a new town? It's funny. It's different for everybody. You know, uh, Brett Perosi, who I toured with, he was with Skid Row for a very long time. And uh, me and him had some great times together. We started touring together on the, on the Kiss tour in 2000 when Skid Row um, and Ted Nugent opened up for Kiss. Uh, it was the farewell tour. It was the last tour that they did with Gene, Paul, Peter and Ace. And Brett and I were the only guys on the road with Skid Row. So we got to be very close. And his first thing was looking for the weed, mm -hmm. right? And my first thing was always looking for a shower or the venue being the TM slash guitar tech slash drum tech slash everything guy. I had a little bit more responsibility. So my first thing was always, where is everything at? So I can tell the guys when they get up and, you know, we get off the bus, you know, basically just to navigate the venue. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but after the show, you're on the road. It's not like hanging out at the hotel, right? You're on to the next gig as soon as they're done playing and you're done breaking down. Yeah. 
Very rarely we had a hotel room. Days off we did just because you get to decompress, maybe do some laundry and stuff like that. But yeah, we were on a bus. It was nonstop. Even my tours in Europe are the same things. You know, I, I hate days off. Days off is all you do is spend money and basically, I don't want to say sleep. Um, you need the mental break once in a while, but I just prefer to just to go, go, go and 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 keep moving on. One of the things in your film, you talk to a lot of roadies and it's everyone. You mentioned this from metal and hardcore bands to The Damned and Demi Lovato. Did you know most of these people before the movie or did you reach out for them for this project? And was that through social media or just contacts in the fraternity? Because I'm assuming that's a very tight fraternity. It is, especially when you get to that the higher level you know, the higher level of techs and, and pro roadies. And, you know, I, I asked a lot of guys too, are, are they offended by the, the term roadie? Because that really doesn't exist anymore. You know, that's like from the, the 70s movie that Meatloaf did, just lugging gear, you know, more or less. And it doesn't work like that now. You have to be a top pro. I've met a lot of techs and a lot of roadies, a lot of road dogs on the road in, in Europe um, from my experience there. So I reached out to those guys. Everybody that, I, that had a personal connection with me, I went to first. Again, gain their trust. I'm not here to get you indicted, incarcerated, divorced. This is not about that. Whereas like some of the MTV guys, they definitely wanted to make it a a really smutty, throw the heroin addict on the road crew and let's get hookers for the dressing room. They, They wanted to make it all about that. And I had no part of that. There's no way I would ever be able to talk to my peers in the business if I ever did that route. So once they trust me with the camera, it just blossomed and and they would call their friends and they say, oh, you got to talk to this guy. And, and, you know, it's just like you when you're doing an interview, you're talking and things just come out of that from from another around the corner. You're like, oh, my gosh, you know him or, yeah, you you ate at that place. And and then it's like, oh, yeah, give him a call. And even when the camera goes off, you're still talking for another another 20 minutes or so getting to know these guys. And it's a very close knit family. Yeah. And it comes through loud and clear that there's this basic understanding of the job amongst the people that you talk to. And, you know, I think one of the things about your movie for people who don't know and, you know, they just go to the show and they don't know how much work goes in and they don't know how many people are up there, you know, busting the hump 24 seven and getting it all done. So, you know, that community and that fraternity comes through loud and clear. And uh, I'm guessing that certainly helped get these folks on board. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's it is a it's a very small tight family. There's a lot of respect. Obviously, I respect all their the, the privacy of what goes on on the road, even though there are there are more AA meetings backstage than there are keg parties. You know, there, there used to be in the 90s and the, you know, the whole sunset strip type of atmosphere backstage is completely out the door. It doesn't happen anymore. You know, the bottom line is they trusted me. I, I put some pieces together. I showed up some clips in the premise of the film and what it was going to be. Everywhere from, you know, Lindsay Vinoy, who's Elton John's keyboard tech, you know, we had to go sit with their management team and we had to show them some clips and videos of what we were looking to do and how we were going to portray Lindsay using Elton John's name. That goes a very long way. And you have to be very careful on how things are presented in the film using the artist's name with their family and their, you know, their road crew was a a hard thing to get over. Yeah. You mentioned two of my favorite parts of the movie and I'll go in order. And one of them you mentioned, it's, I guess, maybe a seemingly acknowledged disagreement and that's whether they are roadies or techs and you've got guys on both sides signing up for one or the other. And I'm just curious, is, is that like a generational thing? Is it financial? Is it pride? Like what exactly is that? Is it, is it a different job? Yeah, I think it's definitely a generational thing. 
you know, just take analog versus digital technology. You know, back in the day, there was a, a guitar head, a guitar amp, plug the cord into the guitar and plug it into the amp. And that was basically it. And the guy would get his tone. Nowadays, everything has gotten so digital. You really need, a, you know, a computer master's degree to be a, a guitar tech for a lot of these guys. And that goes along with everything from the sound to the lights. Everything is done digitally now. So you just can't get a guy out there just going to move, you know, road cases for to drink for free. It doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, with everything, you know, Photoshop, which I work in, which is quite different from what it used to be, it's a blessing and a curse. I mean, it makes the job easier in some respects, but if you get in trouble, you may be in deeper than you thought. Definitely. I mean, we did a lot of one-offs, you know, when you're on the road on a big tour and you have a, a day off or a two day off from that tour, you, you might go play a local venue somewhere. And those are so much fun because you're only loading in half the gear. It's usually a bar atmosphere, much smaller capacity with people and it's more intimate and you can you get away with a lot more shit, you know, <laughs> opposed to the big arenas or the big festival circuits. So that you can get away with just really just plugging in and we're not bringing this in and we're not bringing the, the seven different guitar tunings you have. We're not bringing them in. We're going to, we're going to make it simple. So that was fun. So, you know, it's got both ends of the spectrum, but you know, the text, the roadies these days, they have to be they have to be. They they are so much more educated in the music world. I could never be a guitar tech now for what goes on stage. I was entry level analog. I went to audio engineering school for analog, learned two inch tape. It was the best. Then, you know, then this thing MIDI comes out and then you got all these different things. And then it was, went from being pedals to digital and it exploded. And when I came off the road to go back into the studio and this thing Pro Tools is new. I, I didn't have the time to learn that. And that's why I just stayed on the road. It was a lot easier. And I guess also because of the nature of the show, and Kiss is a perfect example, everything is coordinated to the dime in terms of timing. And, you know, it's just a different event where you get the tone right and they stay up there and play or having flash pots and, and lights and all these things that are timed to the exact chord or note that they're hitting. It's got to be stressful. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, on the, we were on that tour. Doc McGee was manager of Skid Row and he also managed Kiss. We were the little stepbrothers on the tour and we got away with a lot of stuff because of that. We, we were the party bus. That tour, what it did for me was it boosted me up to a whole different level of, you know, arena rock. I came from the, the glam 80s New Jersey scene, got dumped into the hardcore scene in Europe. And I, I did that for many, many years. And then once that happens and you, you play festivals in Europe that are 100,000 people, there's nowhere to go. Where do you go from there? So then it was back to America and playing arenas. And what better spot to be than an opening act on the KISS tour? Because the first show and the 137th show was a show. It was an amazing, amazing show. So I learned a lot. It brought my, um, my expertise on the road up a lot. I, I learned a lot from those, those guys. They were really pro. You're listening to All Music Books Deep Dive, part of All Music Podcasts and Pantheon Media. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with T.J. Hoffman, who's the director of a new movie called Roadie, My Documentary. It's funny, you mentioned Elton John's piano tech, uh, and he's in the film. He had a great line where he said, we are paid for when things go south and how quickly we can turn that around. And that seems to be the job. It's not yeah. when it's good, it's when it's bad. Yeah, yeah. Tom Weber, who was Eddie Van Halen's guy for a long time. And, and um, he was telling me all the stories that go wrong and the different amps and stuff. And I, you know, I was like, why, why are there 12 amps? He goes, cause if, you know, if one goes bad, I know which one goes bad and I could switch it so fast that nobody would ever hear that the mistake. Hmm. Right. So these guys have to understand the programming and the MIDI and the patch bays and everything that goes into, to make that sound. It's a full-time job. It really is. It's not just, uh, you know, weekend warriors with, with the band. It's um, they're on retainer and they're working and they're learning that rig inside and out. Well, it's funny. You mentioned mistakes and probably my favorite story is David Bowie's stage manager. And he is trying, you know, his hardest to meet the lighting director's request for a 500 seat club. So Bowie in a 500 seat club with lights. Can you tell that story? That's a Chris Loden story. He wrote a book. He was very supportive during this whole process. He had he had a ton of stories, and it was great. You know, to sum it up, the the LD, you know, the, you have tractor trailers, and there's so much gear and so much equipment they can only fit so much on stage. And he was hanging lights everywhere and on sprinkler pipes and all over the place. And then the fire marshal comes in and says, "What the hell is wrong with you? You can't hang the lights." And and he goes, "David Bowie's playing in your small club tonight." And the guy was like, yeah, all right, we'll give you a break. And, the, you know, he let him go. And and there's so many stories like that that happen because especially nowadays, you don't see those big type of, of acts or stars playing local venues consistently. Right. So like Bruce Springsteen's big here in New Jersey and every once in a while, once a year or so, he'll pop into a small bar and do a, a song with friends or whatever. You just have to find a way to make it work and give the, the give the fan the best show that that they can possibly get in that atmosphere. If I happened to be at the stone pony and he popped in, I wouldn't need the lights. I would be more than happy uh, to catch that. You would think, right? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> For sure. I'm not sure if you want to go here and we can go easiest, but is, is there a hardest band that you worked for? And I don't necessarily mean personalities, but in terms of gear or, or on the other hand, the, the smoothest where everything just really fell into place and, and was, you know, a quote unquote, easy gig. Yeah, you know, I, I was very blessed in the short time of the career that I had to work for really cool musicians and guys that that worked with me and taught me and showed me the way. Um, again, I'm not a musician, 
I've never learned any instrument, but I, I learned enough myself to get around it, especially for sound check and line check and that kind of stuff. No, look, it was hard. I mean, on the KISS tour of doing arenas, you know, I had to learn a whole different thing about the instrument and, and Snake's 12-string acoustic guitar coming off of a bus into the backstage of the arena, getting, you know, climate acclimated was a big thing. And every time it went out of tune, I would get that look from Satan, you know, from Snake, like, oh, my God. And it was a demanding job. But, you know, those guys were really cool and really understanding. And, and I never had... Never had one show in my life where I said, this is terrible. I can't work for this guy. You know, I want out. I want to quit. Never did that. I took some of those bad looks and experiences and I tried to grow from it and learn my lesson so it wouldn't happen again. Oh, you're lucky. I think all of us have had that at least once. And so for a job like that, especially where people can get a little cranky real quick, uh, that's pretty amazing. Another funny moment, uh, which I'm sure is all too common, and maybe this came from your start of the reality TV show, but there's this great moment where you're being filmed. It looks like you're in front of a hotel, and it's kind of sort of a tour diary. And you start by saying, we are in, and it just trails off. And I'm guessing you forgot where you were for that day. And and from you know most of the things I've read about that, that's incredibly common. You're like, well, you know, even with the artists on stage. Yeah, definitely. So that was 2009, I believe. That was out in Germany, and I jumped on part of the Persistence Tour. I'd known the promoter. The headlining band was Ignite from Orange County, California. Opening up was Agnostic Front from New York and Biohazard from New York, all three bands that I worked for. So when I was putting this film together, I asked them if I could come out for a week with a small crew and just film backstage the roadies, the text, the, the whole process. One, the scene in Europe is they're a lot more friendlier. I don't have union dues. I didn't have to worry about different types of security. And, and I know the promoter. I knew the guys. Like, we slid right in. And yeah, it was, it was like five or six days in a row. We were in Germany, and I couldn't remember where we were because every inside of every club and backstage more or less looks the same. Um, and you, you, you lose track of days and times. And you don't lose track of seasons because the bus is usually really hot or really cold. But there are parts of your week that you just kind of forget where you are. And that's exactly what happened to me. I was going on not a lot of sleep and we were editing at night and we were getting the cameras ready for the next day. And we had a driver and we were in a van. I wasn't on a bus. It was rough, but we uh, we had a blast. And, and there's still so much of that footage I couldn't even use in this, the way this movie went, the, the, the theme, the way it went to my documentary. But there were some great people out there and I, I'm glad I got to spend time with them. And since it is your documentary, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned as a local band that you started with, and then you got it kind of into the hardcore scene. And eventually you get up to Kiss on their farewell tour, or at least their first farewell tour. I think they're still doing one. How does that work? Is it reputation? Is it connections? I mean, Kiss, that's got to be a, a top level gig. Yeah, it was. It was. And again, I, we worked for, I worked for Skid Row on that tour. But I got to be friends with a lot of those guys that work directly for Kiss and on their stage, their stage manager and, and their techs, and as well as Ted Nugent's techs, who were hugely instrumental in pointing me in the right direction of, look, Teej, this happens at CBGB's and this happens at New York City. It doesn't happen on the Kiss tour in this arena. I did a 180 and learned a lot. The element is completely different. On a side note, you mentioned CBGB's. Did you ever see a band or work there? Oh man. Yeah. I did dozens, dozens. It was cool. It was cool. It was, it was, so I worked for agnostic front. We played there a lot ignite and they would come to the East coast. That was always a stop. 
I didn't realize it at the time how instrumental of a place that really is and how many different bands have crossed that stage as a stepping stone into the industry. And to me, it was just another place. It was a crazy place. It had a reputation, but it was the spot to go in the Bowery. You know, the stage is tiny. I mean, tiny. But so if you call yourself a stage manager, CBGB's really is a big deal because there's not much there. But, you know, coming working for Agnostic Front, New York City Hardcore, their home, and me kind of, you know, running that whole show there, it, was, it really was um, heartfelt. And now that it's not there anymore, those memories, they mean twice as much to me. Yeah, it's one of the clubs, especially, you know, growing up in the punk rock here, I always wanted to go to, but I was way south down in Florida. And finally, I'm back in Boston. And, you know, I did get to experience quite a lot of the rat, which is legendary, but you know, it's careful what you wish for because it was a cesspool as well. I mean, it was disgusting. Yeah. Well, you got the middle East, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's nice too. This so guy we worked played a there a couple of times yeah. and, and I know that venue. So they're spread out throughout the country. And, yeah. and when you're on a, with, out with a band that size and, you know, a bus tour and, a, you know, you go right back to the, the punk rock and the hardcore scene. That's, that's what it is. And those, those intimate types of shows are so cool and so much fun. Vinny Stigma, he would play guitar out of tune so often and it didn't matter. One of my best memories of Vinny was Roger, the singer, would look at me and goes, oh my God, teach Vinny's out of tune. Give him the other guitar. Now he had the exact same two guitars, identical Gibson SG guitars, black. Nobody would ever know. Vinny, you're out of tune. I, I need you to switch guitars. He goes, how many songs are left? I look. Vinny, we got seven songs left. Ah, it, we're good. And he played the whole last seven songs out of tune. Roger lambasted me. Oh, I got my ass kicked by him. But that was the mentality of the, the hardcore scene where it didn't matter. Just play, have fun. Nobody knew. They were having a great time. Right. And it was a success. You know, it was great. The live experience. What, what would you like the audience to walk away with after watching your film? So the biggest thing besides me getting sober and being able to function on the road, uh, being sober, you know, coming from one end of the spectrum to the other. The most important thing is people have to realize is the amount of planning and logistics and work that it goes into to make these shows and to make these events. When you pay $65, $75, $350 a ticket, I wanted people to understand that $350 for the ticket started you know, a year ago in somebody's office when they were designing the set and the stages and, and building the crew. And it's a, it was a full-time gig for the guys that make this happen. Then once you get on the road, the amount of time that goes into it, you know, waking up, you know, you're only getting a couple hours sleep. It's a grueling, grueling job. And you really need to put your, uh, your road legs on to make it. And if the fan could watch this movie and learn a little bit, and it's like, they could walk away from it and say, wow, that was really cool. You know, I didn't know that look at the ticket price from a different perspective, that would really make me happy. Last question for you. You know, you've kind of shifted gears a little bit. You've got this fantastic movie out, but do you still miss being on the road? Oh man, I miss it every day. It's funny because when you're on the road, oh, I want to be home. I don't want to be moving when I go to sleep. Like I want real food. Like, you know, you, you want that. And then when you get home, you're like, man, this sucks. I have, I, I'm not doing anything. I, I want to go move. And I, and especially nowadays, because you can see, I see where all my friends are, right? They're posting on Facebook. They're in this city and, you know, they're eating dinner here and they're meeting up with this guy and, and all oh, the Green Day tour just rolled in and all the guys that were on another tour, they jumped over to go see that crew and they were meeting up. I miss all that stuff every single day, but I have a, a family. I have kids now and it's, it's different, but yeah, man, there's, there's days that I miss it for sure. 
Well, it's T.J. Hoffman that we've been speaking with, and he's the director and the perhaps reluctant star, we'll say, of the movie Roadie, my documentary. It's a great movie. Y'all should go out and see it. And uh, do you know where people can go stream this? Yeah, so if you go to the website, roadiefilm.com, it has the link to, it's on a link tree right now. Peter Spire, the distributor, is behind this film. And little by little, it's getting out to more and more platforms. But all the information is on the website at roadiefilm.com. Well, it's a great movie. Congratulations. You know, I think people will be shocked to see what goes into all these shows that they love so much and, and perhaps have a new appreciation for, you know, the folks who do the hard work. Cool, man. Well, listen, I really appreciate it. I thank you for watching and thank you for all you do here on, on your podcast. Uh, it's very exciting to be here. And I, I hope that we could do this again and we could talk about Rody the documentary part two. Wow. <laughs> that would be awesome. Thank you, TJ. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate it. All Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.